feminism, a word that causes people to jump to arms faster than maybe any other topic we've covered here. Which is really saying something, isn't it? I mean, we've talked guns, drugs, poverty, gay people, and the ever-so-dreaded socialism. Even just stating the word itself draws battle lines. But why? Why are people so bent out of shape about a movement that, by and large, is about women having rights? I mean, I thought that was something we all agreed on, that people should have rights, right? Researching this episode was enlightening and honestly pretty fun. And it also made me realize where I stand within the feminist sphere, and it's pretty hilarious, actually, that someone who thought their allyship to women in the feminist movement was fringe at best on account of, you know, being a man, is actually deep in the feminine weeds, which is, you know, my preferred state. But let's talk all about feminism on Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wait Hat. I am your host, William, and I will be your coochless conductor on this train through the history and controversies of feminism. Thank you for listening. It means the world that my voice is in your ears, even if you think it's suspiciously leftist and perhaps just the slightest bit biased. Always excellent to have the support. Now, I do actually have something to announce right here at the front of the episode today. No, I still don't have merch drops or anything like that. Instead, I wanted to ask you if you could please download the show. I appreciate the streaming, Morse code, and poorly reciting the show so your friends don't have to be subjected to the constant stream of dick jokes, but the downloads are what I can track on my platform of choice, which is really helpful to know that my show is reaching your ears. And believe me, the moment they start tracking streams, I'll stop telling you to download. All right, on to the show. So this week, if you couldn't guess, has a lot to talk about in this opening section. Because while we won't be talking about all the waves of feminism quite yet, we are going to define not only feminism, but also the different types and a ton of terms you're going to need to know to look smart enough to pick up the neon green-haired feminist collegiate you're crushing on. Don't worry, I won't only help you understand enough to get laid with her, but to actually have a conversation and connect with another human being, because that's what women are. But anyways, let's get into it. Now, we're going to start with the good old-fashioned dictionary definition of feminism. According to that, feminism is advocating for women's rights based on the basis that the sexes are equal. Pretty easy, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. While feminism is that, this doesn't scratch even the first nanometer of a single hair of pube of what feminism is. But looking at the disciplinary definition, and no, not what your mom or your mommy do to you, Disciplinary, as in within feminism, is the following. An interdisciplinary approach to issues of equality and equity based on gender, gender expression, gender identity, sex, and sexuality as understood through social theories and activism. 
Does that make sense to you? Well, too bad, because there's actually another disciplinary definition. Feminism is a social, academic, and cultural movement aimed at interrogating and changing the economic, civil, and ideological disparities between men, women, and those who identify outside the gender binary, and in addition, seeks to alter the way in which culture views sex and gender holistically. And if your head is spinning a bit, I understand. The reason why even just painting down what feminism means is hard is because there isn't a single monolithic definition. Why? Well, because there isn't a feminist agenda or secret cabal of feminists drinking the blood of menfolk and celebrating when you specifically get blue-balled. Feminism, rather, is upwards of thousands to millions of different movements worldwide that attempt to address and fix literally everything that falls outside of or is in direct opposition to the concept of patriarchy. And even then, as we discussed in episode 5, there are thousands upon thousands of ways to think of femininity, and because of that, the social values being challenged and the equality being worked towards is entirely different to every separate sect of feminist. So, you know, hitch up your thinking pants and go get a coffee. And speaking of patriarchy, let's start talking about the terms to know, starting with the most misunderstood word in the modern era. Patriarchy describes a hierarchical society in which men hold more power or favored and also values whatever that culture views as masculine traits. And if you immediately think that places that are extreme patriarchies, like the ones in the Middle East and North Africa, or particularly traditionalist Japanese and Chinese cultures, you'd be right, but also the West is equally patriarchal, like the U.S. Think about it. What are U.S. masculine traits? And what are the values we really love in the U.S.? See how they're pretty fucking similar? Now, also understand that patriarchy doesn't refer to you in particular as a man. It refers to the culture. So if you feel attacked, you just straight up aren't important enough to be attacked like that. So next, let's talk about oppression and objectification. So oppression is the unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power over a person or a group of people. And objectification is reducing a human to an object for one's own pleasure and gratification. So with these definitions, you understand literally just enough to not be instantly offended and baby rage at a minority. For a quick quiz, when a feminist says that she's tired of being oppressed and objectified by the patriarchy, is she talking about you? Good. Exactly. It depends. If you're currently doing literally nothing and she strikes up a conversation with you and says that, she doesn't mean you. If you are using your position of power or fame to tell her to bring her titties over here, then yes, she absolutely is, and she's right. Speaking of which, sexism. This, simply put, is the idea that one sex is superior to another, and this can be broken down into several subtypes. First is pure sexism, or what I call personal sexism, where it is literally what is written above with no other context. Now, all the others assume that a woman or gender rebel is on the receiving end, which is fair given that usually sexism refers to a system of power and control. This is practical sexism, where the idea is that since men have been on top of the world for such a long time, societal and individual level sexism doesn't affect them in the same way it affects other genders. Then there's hostile sexism, which includes open insults, violence, and objectification levied at non-masculine genders. This also includes the idea that women are trying to control men and subjugate them by using sex and feminism. You know, some real... Andrew Tater Totter shit. 
Next is benevolent sexism. Now, while it sounds like it's a good form of being a sexist, that isn't what this is about. Rather, it's the idea of complementary sexism, where women especially are seen as needing protection or just have a complete mental breakdown without a penis wielder one to fuck them nearby. Due to that, things like saving women from danger over men in the same danger, not being allowed to go to war, and being treated as vital resources to be safeguarded at home are all forms of benevolent sexism. As well as being annoyingly chivalrous and other attitudes of traditional behavior to protect women based on the idea that women are weak. And finally is internalized sexism, which is when your beliefs that women are inferior becomes part of your worldview and self-concept. Basically that in your brain, women being weak and needing protection is an undeniable fact rather than just being a sexist. Now related to sexism is all the flavors of hatred. So the first term is misanthropy, which is the hatred of people. Now, I bring this up not because a ton of feminists are going to bring it up, but because one of its subtypes will be. Misogyny, specifically, is the hatred of women. And attached to this are misogynoir, which is a term coined by Moya Bailey to describe anti-black racist misogyny, you know, speedrunning being an asshole, and transmisogyny, which is a blend between queerphobia and misogyny, particularly transphobia. And one you'll hear all the time as a way for the anti-feminists, weirdly calling themselves meninists, to say that feminism is bad, is misandry, which is the hatred of men. Now, the other flavor of hatred I want to discuss is something that actually comes from the feminist movement, and is one that a lot of feminists will try to separate themselves from with a 10-foot pole. The IRFs, or Exclusionary Radical Feminists. These are people that think that feminism is good and protects people, except for, conveniently, the group that they don't like. Some common examples are swerfs, that think that sex workers don't count because they sell their bodies to men, and turfs, that don't think that trans women are women because they're assholes. Turfs are also notable for being responsible for turning a mediocre Harry Potter game into a culture war recently. Also, I've seen gameplay of it. It's mediocre. Don't try to defend it. And for a quick turn, if I'm very quickly, because it's important to bring up and how it relates to feminism, but it's pretty self-explanatory and doesn't fit anywhere else, that being women of color. This term is meant to unite women from marginalized communities of non-white women that experience oppression for their gender, race, or oftentimes both. And this is important because for a long time, women of color were excluded from feminism. More on that later. Now this next set is on the topic of sex, sexualization, and objectification. That is your trigger warning because this is going to fucking suck for a second. So the first term is rape culture, I warned you, which is a cultural background or environment that rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and extreme sexualization aren't taken seriously or are super, super prevalent. And this is clear in situations including when a woman comes forward with a story and the first thing people jump to is that she's lying or making it up, which doesn't happen for other crimes. Also, this includes the perpetualization of misogyny and the objectification of women. And a big part of this comes hand-in-hand hand with our next term, victim-blaming. As the name would imply, this is blaming the victim of violent crime, harmful acts or harassment, and placing either partial or full responsibility on their shoulders. This includes saying things like, why was she dressed like that? Or, well, if only she did X, it, that wouldn't have happened. Meant to belittle and delegitimize them or their experience. And note that does not mean someone 
has to be intentionally trying to minimize or shift blame. This can include people pointing out the steps the victim could have taken. Because while yes, there were steps that could have been taken, the point is that even if someone is an easier victim than someone else, that doesn't mean it should happen or have ever been allowed to happen in the first place. Wrapping into this is the phrase, yes means yes, and assumably, you've heard about no means no. While you might assume that this is the best hashtag to use to change the world without actually putting in any effort, feminism has moved on from it. And why? Well, because it assumes that the base assumption is yes unless told otherwise. Yes means yes means that the base state of consent is always no unless there is a clear, explicit, and safely given yes with clear mind and without extortion. But if you could please not turn this into a trendy hashtag for contrarians to rail against, just because it's the internet, that would be fucking excellent, thank you. And while it might seem the exact opposite, the other term to talk about right here is sex positivity. This is an attitude that sex, pleasure, and sexual expression are good things, assuming that they are healthy and consensual. But why is this wrapped up in feminism? Because for a very long time, women have been socialized to view sex and sexuality as shameful and to be averse to feeling sexual pleasure. A major fight of feminism, especially modern feminism, is to undo that and understand sex as something that a large number of humans do and is perfectly fine and healthy. If you're an anti-feminist asshole whose main argument is that the feminists want women to be forced lesbians to hate men, this might be the checkmate, buckaroo. Because there's a lot of straight women in the world, so you're the reason why no one wants to fuck you. Not the feminists. Okay, so now we're going to look at some of the meme terms. And not necessarily because they're memes, but because people have turned them into memes, or they sound, admittedly, kind of dumb. But starting with the big meme on one, the male gaze. Like with a lot of other things labeled all blank or blank and all men are scum chants, this is meant to call attention to an issue and is not a scathing Yelp review of all men. Because obviously not all people of the same demographic work the same. It's describing a tendency that is also meant to be a signal if you get mad about it. And if you don't know that last part, don't worry, I didn't either until fairly recently. But anyways, the male gaze is a term to mean looking at the world in a way that a stereotypical male would, especially in regards to women seeing them as sex objects. Now, if you're male and are attracted to women and don't think you do that, I want you to really pay attention to what your brain's inner monologue is when you check someone out in public. I bet you aren't thinking, damn, she seems like she has a really similar interest to me. Also, to get ahead of this, no, this doesn't mean women don't ogle. They fucking do. But they also aren't the ones that are being propped up by a patriarchal society, telling them that that means they deserve to fuck that man meat. Okay, but moving on to appropriating, because it's bro and appropriating. Get it? Fuck. Now, of course, as you expect, this came from the internet. I, no fucking way, right? This is the practice of stealing a woman's idea or work and putting it out into the world as your own. And while this can come in the form of art theft, it does also come in the form of, say, you know, hiring a woman to help with a project and then taking credit despite her doing the majority of the work. You know, the real middle manager approach to life. And why does this get its own special term? Well, because women, especially in the workplace, aren't treated as equals. They're treated as helpers, while the men do all the real work of taking the credit and doing business handshakes and stocks and options and 
everything else that the Sigma Grindset influencers saw on a stock video website under the tag Office Workers. Now, we're going to cover the three terms with the man prefix. Those being mansplaining, manterrupting, the sloppiest word mooshing I've ever seen, and manspreading. Mansplaining is when a man, like me, explains something to a woman, like you, in a condescending way, like this, that either he doesn't know about or knows less than the woman he's talking to. I'm kidding. If you're a woman, you probably know better than anyone what this is like. This behavior, of course, comes from good daddy patriarchy, because women are treated as knowing nothing and being good at nothing. So the idea is that men should walk them through everything. Alright, manterrupting is when a man excessively or habitually interrupts a woman. Now this, regardless of self-awareness, comes from the same place. Because we're socialized to believe women are submissive and subservient to men, we assume that their turn in conversational order is always the last. So interrupting is okay, especially if we haven't talked yet. And while this is sucky, there are three ways that men do this. Intentionally, where they know this is a problem and want to piss you off. Others feel it isn't as big of a social violation and want to talk right now, and others still are so heavily socialized that they don't notice they're doing it or are actively trying to get better. While you should still call all three of these out when it happens, please be gentle with that third group. We're really trying, and also some of us are nervous because you're cute and talking to women makes us forget how talking to people works. Anyways, finally is manspreading. This is when you as a man take up more space than you have to. And for a lot of men, this is kind of automatic. And why? Not because your balls need room. If they're that fucking cramped, get some looser pants and go to the doctor. In reality, because whether we recognize it or not, men are socialized to control their environment. And what better way than to put your shit and rub your stinky fucking balls all over it? Now, obviously, something similar exists with women. However, this behavior in women isn't about control, it's about safety. Because it's socially unacceptable to move a stranger's things or body in public and strangers respond stronger to that than they do to sexual harassment. So by spreading their shit out, it creates a bubble where people can't approach them and sexually harass them without being a weirdo. Okay. So now we move on to woke. Wokeism and being woke comes from black activism. Meaning that you are aware of and educated about injustice and prejudice and understand that it is a bad thing. And it's often implied that you're joining the good fight against it. Much like a lot of cool things black people have, everyone else took some of it too, and now it's used in a ton of social justice movements. And the reason this is associated with cringe is because a lot of suburban liberals and SJWs started saying it, with good intentions, mind you, until it became nothing more than a virtue signal and not actually doing anything helpful. Which is why, as I am right now, aren't particularly woke. Because, well, yeah, I'm very well-versed in injustice and understand it's evil, and also get extremely angry about it. What am I doing to help? Making a podcast? Like half of every early 20s white male? See, being woke is cringy because people like me started using it as an excuse to say, I'm offended on behalf of people I otherwise don't care about because my home life is a wreck and I need to feel something. And this leads us directly to a specific kind of person you'll get real familiar with if you work near feminists. And is also why I'm really trying to contain my horniness and not come across as this kind of person. The woke misogynist. And while this is kind of self-explanatory now that we know what those two terms mean, what it technically means is someone using gender equality and claims to be a woke feminist 
just to get laid. In the meantime, they still demean, degrade, and harass women. Which, again, is kind of why it's hard to claim being a male feminist. Because these guys follow feminist groups around like a toddler you're trying to abandon and gives your run-of-the-mill feminist simps an even worse name than we already have. Moving on. Quickly, the other meme term is also a kind of person. Feminazi. Now, in common usage, this is a derogatory term towards radical feminists, who we'll get into later. Something I've occasionally seen and how I've used the term in the past is to refer to the script flipper feminist. The script flippers being women who want not equality, but vengeance, and to subject men to the same oppression that patriarchy does to women. And while some of you perverted freaks might like that, like me, this isn't popular. I think I've literally only seen this viewpoint in videos at text post compilations of people being dumb, right alongside Trumper Facebook and NFT buyers. Okay, you have all those terms in your head. Good, because we're going to stuffy bunny four more of them in that noggin of yours. And don't worry if you forget some, this might be the first time you're hearing about it, and I'm not writing it from memory either. These are going to be terms around more philosophical organization of things. First is Kyriarchy. This concept created by Elizabeth Schuessler. Schuessler. I am very sorry if this somehow reaches your ears, Elizabeth, or if you have the same last name. You all should know how bad I pronounce things by now. Anyways, um, has a lot to it, but the basic stripped-down version is that most people have a web of dominance and subservience in their life, where you're oppressed in some relationships and privileged in others. For example, say Juan works a 9-to-5 office job as a team lead and then goes to the bar for about an hour, and then comes home to his dommy mommy wife, Kim, that consensually turns his body inside out for a bit before they make dinner and go to bed. So he is oppressed in his relationship to his boss and to Daddy Sam, and is willingly and happily oppressed by Kim. But he is privileged in being a team lead over the bartender, and in being a man living in patriarchal society. Next are essentialism, naturalization, and complementarianism. Essentialism is the idea that people have a fixed nature, i.e. gender. Naturalization is the idea that gender is naturally occurring, like trees, rocks, and femboys, and that gender is innate in all people and aren't social constructs unlike femboys. And complementarianism is the idea that men and women are different but have complementary roles and responsibilities that are usually under this belief naturally ingrained. I go through these ones easier because on the hierarchy of importance they're kind of low. These are important if talking to that feminist woman you have a crush on is going well and you hit it off. These might come up. But why? Well, because feminism in general is largely opposed to these ideas. Especially because they're usually all wrapped up in each other like the least sexy threesome, besides imagining the threesome between Nick Fuentes, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Steven Crowder, and two buckets of KFC chicken. Ugh. But why is it that disgusting? Stop picturing it, you're causing yourself brain damage. Because they play off of each other to support patriarchy. Now things are like this not because some assholes millennia ago started oppressing women and God jerked them off for it, because this is how the world is supposed to work. Which isn't true, by the way. Okay, so now that I've stuffed your brain with the terms to know, we're going to do a rundown of the types of feminism. And hopefully this is going to be a bit quicker. Beginning with black feminism. 
This form of feminism focuses specifically on the experiences of black women, seeing the intersection of racism and sexism in a patriarchal and white society. This is founded in response to the first and second wave feminists leaving black women out, as we'll see soonish, and being left out of the mostly male-dominated black liberation movements. Cultural feminism is a form of feminism that says, hey, men and women are in fact different. We think and act very differently, and that's okay. And while this might sound very nice, it's often critiqued by other feminists. Because while sure, the things that women are used to represent shouldn't be treated as weaknesses, this form of feminism not only upholds the gender binary, but also denies that any other genders exist, and that some cultures have more than two, or have different definitions of genders. Ecofeminists are a branch of feminists that are also environmentalists. Ecofeminists see how both women and nature are oppressed by patriarchy and draw the connection, saying that in order to help one, we need to help the other. So the only way to fight the patriarchy and free women is to help save the environment, and the only way to save the environment from those that would destroy it is to support feminist causes and give women the power to put patriarchy on the back foot. Liberal feminism is the branch of feminism that believes that achieving women's rights and liberties through the use of already existing legal and political systems is the only way to do it. Essentially, by controlling the government, feminists can ensure the freedom of all women, which is about as popular as most other forms of liberal philosophy. Socialist and Marxist feminism, like ecofeminism, believes that the only way to ensure gender equality is dependent on another thing. In this case, it's socialism. The idea is that by embracing and using socialism, feminists will be able to defeat capitalism, which is deeply tied to patriarchy. That socialists, by embracing feminism, will be able to defeat patriarchy, which weakens capitalism. Anyone else feel some masonry in their underwear imagining feminists and socialists touching each other, or is that just me? Next is intersectional feminism. This branch examines and works to understand how overlapping identities and social tags can impact the experience and discrimination of women. Now, this is similar to black feminism, but black feminism is in its own category because of the uniquely terrible way the West has treated black people, especially black women. Included under this umbrella is multiracial feminism, which examines how feminism interacts with and is influenced by race and how racial exploitation and oppression can affect women and how the oppression of women impacts race. Okay, and now radical feminism. And this is not militant feminism, as much as that, once again, makes my underwear start building public housing projects. This form of feminism basically says that the only way to fix society is to burn it down and start again. That society, as it currently is, is so interlaced with patriarchal systems like shit in the ass hair of the average American, that's impossible to fix with the current system we use. Trans feminism isn't feminism that transcends humanity. It's feminism that includes trans women, queer people, and self-identified women, regardless of sex, and challenges the cis privilege of general or mainstream feminism with the central tenet that people can self-identify. Trans feminism is largely why feminism's definition includes non-women, because of its empowerment of queer people that aren't necessarily women. And you see, under this, I think I would technically be protected by trans feminists. Like, trans feminists would also be fighting for my rights to be in love with people that have a wiener. Um, 
white feminism is feminism that primarily focuses on the struggle of white women or the assumption of white women being the only, quote-unquote, real women. This is a problem that plagued the first and second wave of feminism and now really only exists with either racists or feminists from the burbs that don't realize that black and brown women exist. Womanism is a kind of feminism coined by Alice Walker after black women were left out of white feminism. This form embraces minority women, focuses on the contributions of women to society, and ropes in a lot of spiritual beliefs into it too. And, you know, while I'd love to have more information about this, womanism describes at least four different forms of feminism, as well as at least one religion, and I don't know what I'm talking about enough to say something that at least a quarter of you won't have a problem with. So, if any of you listening understand womanism a lot more, uh, please enlighten me. I would love to know more about it. It sounds interesting. Next is empowerment feminism. This form is the super, super pandering feminism you see all over the place, where the purpose is to feel good, supported, and powerful, as well as pushing you to use your femininity to empower your success and put being a woman center stage of your success and fighting for your own power. While this still does have good in it, this was super overused, especially with superhero properties and girl power cartoons, and a lot of feminists aren't super into this anymore because it doesn't really emphasize helping women in general and is more getting your own girl bossing going on. Also, some parts of it are really like, be a dick to men because you're good at being a woman. So feminists also don't like that, usually. Second to last is commodity feminism. This is, simply put, feminism that's been co-opted by companies that don't give a single shit and have a diversity hire woman on their board of executives they don't listen to to gain brownie points. Brownie points they trade for you purchasing their products and not questioning their shit when they do something really fucked up. Like Nike having girl power ads to try to distract the feminists from the sweatshops they have overseas filled with young girls making shoes. And finally is equity or conservative feminism. This form is focused on women achieving legal, but not necessarily social or cultural equality. And why is that? Because in their minds, and hold on to your clitoris, feminism has turned women into perpetual victims of this mysterious and shady figure called a man that helicopters his cock in his window when no one's looking. It's also usually where traditional feminists are, or trad femmes, being feminists that believe that Actually, things were better when the men ran everything, and also women can work or vote or have agency or say no to their husband's sexual advances or choose how to dress or what to do with their lives. You know, the good old days. Fucking gag me. Like, I get it. You want Senpai to notice you, and you think the only way to do that is to actively set back the causes of feminism to undermine the sexy, nipple-pierced, blue-haired, crop-top-wearing whores he's fawning over. Alright, and with that, we're going over the history section. And we start in 3rd century BC in Rome. And, uh, gotta say, I really wasn't expecting that. Of all the places to have the origins of feminism, wouldn't expect the very, very sexist old Rome. Now, what happened here was the Roman women locked the doors to the Roman Forum because they had recently been forced to give up luxury goods. If you're thinking sexist thoughts, it's because they were rich in Roman, not because they're women. And this was actually met with success. Women got a victory. Hooray! And Cato the Elder, one of those 
big Greek, but actually Roman, assholes noted the event by saying, quote, If they are victorious now, what will they not attempt? As soon as they begin to be your equals, they will have become your superiors. End quote. And you know what? Sign me up. I wouldn't mind getting ruled over by women. And let's not ignore the sexism here, because besides my own little male gazy remarks there, Cato the Elder is absolutely being sexist, because he's doing the whole incel thing of, these fucking women want to have rights, they're going to try to neuter me. But, as you might expect, the BCs, while having plenty of moments of feminism, worked out a lot like this example. Women decide, fuck it, I'm not going to put up with this shit anymore. They do something cool or empowering that, again, makes me start making masonry, and then the men are like, huh, bet they love to suck some dick, or, oh no, they want to cut my cock off, and then all the other men go, huh, women, and then business as usual. Even powerful female leaders, both daring and after their reigns, have been shitted on, and people have actively attempted to erase them. Speaking of the erasure of the voice and power of women, the late 14th and early 15th centuries. In this time, a feminist philosopher by the name of Christine de Pizan, and when you fucking surprise she's French, arrives on the scene. She advocates for the education of women and challenges prevailing attitudes towards them. Until her death in 1430, she wrote books of advice, poetry, and other written works for the court of medieval France. Much of these works were about the place of women and were various literary, political, and religious commentaries. Then in 1844, Laura Soretta, a Venetian woman, published a collection of letters that discussed the hardships and complaints of women in Venice at the time. This includes things like a lack of education, marital oppression, and frivolous attitudes towards the clothing of women. That final one is the women's clothing at the time was uh, notably uncomfortable, impractical, and relatively useless. Again, one of the things clothing is supposed to protect you from. The weather. And these letters, as was tradition of the time, was very cleverly named personal letters. And this is very important because this is the first time, especially in the age where printing was expensive as hell, where women are given an actual chance to voice problems. Now, given, it's not like this is a common coffee table book these days, and Neither was it a large group of women sharing their experiences, but hey, it's progress. And from these women and other early feminist writers spawned an entire genre of medieval feminist literature in the 16th century. This philosophical genre was about the defense of women and advocation for their rights. Well, today, most people would be like, that's it? No investigation of rape culture or patriarchy? Keep in mind that at the time, women were viewed as silly by nature, superficial, and immoral. You know, on account of the whole original sin biting the apple thing. <laughs> Silly women. Damning the entire bloodline of humanity to toil in the earth and then burn in the bottomless pit of fire for eternity. Hashtag just girly things. Now, while this was the prevailing attitude, feminists were fighting against this hard. By creating lists of women that accomplished great things, including women from the Bible, like the warrior queen Deborah, and Rachel's kindness to all people and her loyalty to Jacob, they made the argument that women in their state as second-class citizens were contributing to moral goodness and the furthering of humanity. So imagine if they were also being well-educated and also treated like men. And to this very reasonable argument, the men at the time said something like, shut the fuck up and make me a sandwich, and went back to inventing capitalism, butchering brown people in the Middle East, being anti-Semites, and trying to fuck their first cousin in the mouth. And all of this so far has been in the 
well-groomed, highly educated areas of Southern Europe and hadn't quite made it to the pig-shit-farming, crayon-chewing Brits yet. A pair of habits they still haven't managed to kick, by the way. But by the end of the 16th century, feminism reaches England for the first time. To massive mockery and derision. See what I mean? Bunch of fucking dummies, these people. But anyways, in response to this mockery, an early feminist by the name of Jane Anger, fucking awesome last name, printed a pamphlet called Jane Anger, Her Protection for Women. Also fucking badass pamphlet name. Um, in which she calls men out, saying she'll speak for all women about the self-centered, self-serving, and pitiful nature of men and all of their failings. And yes, Jeff, that includes having a tiny, premature jackling Pinor your girlfriend said wasn't a big deal. Also, what a fucking baller move. You want to repress my gender? Fine. I guess I'm telling you all the ways your gender is really fucking up every part of being alive. Back in Southern Europe, in Venice, the book The Worth of Women by author Moderata Fonte, I'm sorry, Italian people, was published posthumously. Also, I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, also, the full title of the book is, uh, excuse me, The Worth of Women, wherein is clearly revealed their nobility and their superiority to men which, as the title suggests, makes the argument that actually women are equal to men in every way they were allowed to be educated. I do wish, however, that was an entire book just saying the truth. We all know, but hey, whatever. And going back to the shit-farming, crayon-eating backwater of England in 1694 and 1697, we have two volumes of Serious Proposal to the Ladies, which was not men crawling back to apologize and beg for a crumb of some pussy but was instead the English author Mary Estelle writing a proposal that, hey, maybe us single women that aren't serving holy Jesus longcock Christ should build a convent to live and learn in and stop giving these perverted men ankles to ogle over. Now, while some of you men might be thinking, huh, sounds like maybe an excuse for a lesbian to be around a bunch of single, sexually available women, I already had that thought, and there's no evidence of her being gay. However, in the late 1600s, she was an unmarried feminist academic. So, do with that what you will. But, I mean, also, lesbians are generally better socialized than us, so they probably wouldn't join a convent just to get some free pussy. To be fair, don't think they turned it down, though. And all of this leads to the Enlightenment era, a time when white people, probably during one of their most net harmful in, in world history, sighed and went, Damn, we're pretty fucking excellent, aren't we? and started to focus on intellectual pursuits and improving the lives of people in the most pandering ways possible. Of course, this era, with the intellectual improvement feature, sees a mass organization of women into the earliest form of what we would now call feminism. During this time, the push was for liberty, equality, and the basic rights of women. And how did the world respond? Well, in 1789, the Declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen, defining French citizenship after they gave the ruling class what they fucking deserved, actively avoided talking about women, essentially treating them like they weren't citizens. Which, reasonably, pissed off the feminists. So in 1789, in direct response, the playwright Olympia de Gauche... <laughs> Sorry, I just realized I'm probably butchering that name and it's funnier because of it. Uh published Declaration of the Rights of Women and of the Female Citizen, which declared women as being the equals to men and their partner rather than their servant. 
which surprisingly at the time was considered to be radical feminism rather than trad feminism. In the following year, sensing the disturbance of the geofeminist matrix, which is a real thing, by the way, don't look it up, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a Vindication of the Rights of Woman. This challenged the idea that women existed to please men, and she asserted that men and women be given equal opportunities and rights in all aspects. And before the men could say, but women contribute nothing to society, forgetting the entire population of humanity and also literally millennia of statecraft, diplomacy, war, and politics, she countered their argument by saying, hey, fuckfaces, I wonder whose fault that is. Men. The, the answer is men. Society at that time, more than today, really reinforced the idea that women don't know what they're talking about and are irrelevant. Uh, but now we jump all the way to the 1800s. In the 1840s, Europe was swallowed up by waves of feminist movements. Lucky motherfuckers. But anyways, this is an effort to grant women basic human rights. Which is, you know, the thing they've been fighting for for almost 400 years. And this was met with a lot of traction and success. Until the 1850s, when the powers that be realized that the thing that was happening was women trying not to be objects anymore the entire decade was marked with massive and strict repression and hatred for women. Now, this remained the status quo in Europe and the rest of the Western world for decades. Until 1903, when the British feminists had e-fucking-nuff and stopped fucking around and asking nicely and actually protesting. In particular, a faction led by Emmeline Pankhurst began boycotting places, forming pickets, and also motherfucking firebombing. Now, while she wasn't a perfect person, you know, like all people that ever existed, she did help the British feminist movement of the time make massive strides. And all this effort resulted in British women getting the right to vote in 1918. Well, I mean, women householders, the wives of householders, and uni graduates over the age of 30, but hey, progress. Unfortunately, after this, the groups responsible for this push kind of just collapsed because the thing they had been campaigning for worked. And then after that, the feminist movement seems to largely fall apart because the base of the philosophy and activity begins to pull the movement in thousands of different directions, and the movement loses focus. Which, I mean, honestly kind of fair, given that women realize that using fire in the middle fingers can get a lot of shit done, of course there'd be a lot of arguments about what to use that power on next. But then something else happened. By the end of the 20th century, Amongst the other things the West was outputting for the rest of the world, among them was Western feminism. And they were fucking horrified at the conditions of non-Western women. Surprisingly, this caused a lot of tension. Why? Because Western feminists rushed to fix the problems by teaching that the fault lies on patriarchy and the society that traps them within it. But they were failing to actually listen to the women they were quote-unquote helping, telling them that these issues weren't caused by patriarchy. They were caused by colonization from the West. And the Westerners, ever so self-aware, said, Oh, nonsense. See, the problem isn't that we've been putting our moral code onto you, forcing you to conform to it until you radicalize, and then coming back a couple dozen years later and acting surprised about it. It's the men. And so a lot of women from everywhere but the West were really put off about feminism. And to demonstrate what I mean, let's talk about two events. In 1980... After the World Conference of the United Nations Decade for Women, Equality, Development, and Peace in Copenhagen, quite the mouthful, a lot of women from non-Western parts of the world 
felt not only left out, but called out. Because the West took innocuous things like veils and head coverings, and actually problematic things like genital mutilation, and decided to talk about those, instead of talking about what the women in the rest of the world wanted to do. Stuff like, you know, basic human rights, protecting women from abuse, uh, the prevention of acid attacks, and other things that you need to develop to ensure basic levels of power and safety. And then in 1994, during the International Conference on Population Development in Cairo, women from developing nations felt like the event had been hijacked by Westerners to talk about contraception and abortion, rather than how underdevelopment was holding them back. Which was the whole point of the event. It wasn't, hey, we need birth control pills and condoms to be liberated. It was, hey, we need help to not be constantly dealing with horseshit so we can focus on being feminists our way and fighting for our own rights. And the West went, and the West went, got it, you need abortion pills and birth control. But speaking of not listening to the locals about what they need and instead imposing our own thoughts onto them, let's talk about U.S. feminist history. Beginning in the mid-19th century, as Europe was being surrounded on all sides by feminists, a lot of those ideas jumped to the U.S. and took root. Meaning that in addition to other social changes happening, feminism began to sprout alongside of it. Leading to 1848, when the first women's right convention was held in Seneca Falls, New York. The spur-of-the-moment meeting happened when the Quaker preacher Lucretta Mott, her sister Martha White, Marianne McClintock, Jane Hunt, and the wife of an abolitionist, Elizabeth Cady Satin, and Shorner Truth met together and began talking about feminism. What occurred was a list of 11 resolutions written down by Stanton called the Declaration of Sentiments, which included the right to vote. And working with the Frederick Douglass, they were able to push these resolutions and successfully secured them. Now, notably, this early form of feminism had nothing to do with the common women or non-white women, as Sonia Truth, an ex-slave, was the only non-white, non-affluent woman present. And then later, in 1851, she delivered her famous anti-woman speech. However, feminism ground to a halt in the 1850s and 60s. Why? Well, because they were told to shut the fuck up, because a bunch of men were about to line up and shoot each other, because some of them were told by rich people that owning other humans is okay as long as they're a darker color than you. So, feminists was put on the back burner because Lincoln said, no owning black people, and now the southerners were playing banjos and loading muskets. And you'd think that after the Civil War, there'd be more interest in feminism. Right? No. While it was assumed women's suffrage would be included in the 15th Amendment, abolitionists said, nah. Now, it is equally likely that this was because they knew racial equality was a stretch already, or they straight up didn't care. Dealer's choice on that. Then in 1869, Elizabeth Statton joins forces with a familiar face we haven't seen in a while. Susan B. Anthony. Now, if you don't remember, Susan B. Anthony was a hardcore feminist and prohibitionist. And they formed the Women's Suffrage Union and began the campaign for the vote again this time using the argument of inalienable rights brought about by the Enlightenment. But, well, you know it, a lot of people knew the Enlightenment was for white guys to feel good about how smart they were and to not affect any actual change, so the plan didn't work for too long. So in the 1890s, Susan B. asked for more help from the labor unions. After getting a resounding no thank you, she said that working women were absolutely fucked then because she wasn't going to help them if the unions won't help her. Fucking ice cold. 
even more cold, she straight up refused the health fight against Jim Crow laws. Now, is that racism or dedication? Again, dealer's choice on that. Or maybe not, because by 1900, with a massive influx of immigrants and slums popping up like Starbucks, people in the U.S. started getting real tired of the idea of human decency and the rights of all people. So, just in case you thought your racist uncle was unique, he's actually part of a proud American tradition of hating immigrants and anyone else having nice things. But in order to keep up with the times, Susan B. Anthony changed tactics. See, up to this point, the thesis of feminism has been, hey, aren't us women also human beings? Which had worked for the most part because the idea of a human being being worthwhile and valued wasn't mired in a bunch of racist bullshit. But now the narrative changed to one of, well, wouldn't it be a shame if white women started fucking other races? And Susan B. started to ally with groups such as the Anti-German League, and anti-immigrant organizations to gain support for feminism. And while one could say that this is choosing to work with one evil to fight another, I'd also like to remind you that at this time, women's suffrage and rights were mostly seen as being for white women, so it was probably also being racist because they meant it. Unfortunately, even if it was a sacrifice of moral character, feminism didn't really become all that more popular, at least until later in the early 1900s, with the emergence of feminist icon Alice Paul, which if you know my track record for the kind of women I'm into from either this show or Nerd, makes my boxes turn into briefs, because she was a real badass warrior woman far after that was something men thought was a possibility. She lit a fire in the ass of the largely flailing and racism-laden feminist movement by integrating the British tactics and Americanizing the fuck out of them. She used mass demonstrations, battles with police, fire bombings, shock trooper tactics, massive and highly energetic protests, basically forcing feminism into the faces of men and the government. And Alice Paul was down for the fucking cause, including being arrested multiple times for protests and efforts, and even organizing hunger strikes while behind bars, getting out, and then getting arrested again while protesting or demonstrating more. Also, if a woman has a picture of uh, a lady holding up a glass in front of a flag with a with yellow on top, white and stars in the middle, and purple on the bottom as her profile picture and your replies while you're doing a sexism, you are fucked. But all of this work and arguably domestic terrorism with the firebombing paid off. Because in 1920, the 19th Amendment, which allowed women to vote, passed. Unfortunately, much like in Europe, the feminism movement kind of broke apart after this for much the same reason. With the big rallying point done, a lot of women went to their separate ways, got even more radical with their feminism, or turned esoteric and started to do the academic debates of feminism that has eventually landed us with that block of definitions I read out a bit ago. One of the groups that survived was the National Women's Party led by Alice Paul. This group proposed the Equal Rights Act, a law meant to ban government-sanctioned discrimination based on sex, which didn't get very far considering that the movement was collapsing. But now we move on to World War II, where women once again receive a huge boost of feminism. Due to a motherfucking third of all men in the U.S. being shipped to Europe and the Pacific Ocean, the government relied on women to pick up their work, and with the jobs they were suddenly socially not only allowed but pressured to have, women for the first time in the U.S. had something largely only men had. Fuck you, money. And this new freedom, independence, and badassery would inspire second-wave feminists later on. 
For them, however, there wouldn't really be an opportunity to capitalize as World War II ended. And the U.S., in the 1940s, being the U.S., said, Good game, ladies. Gave them a way too long smack on the ass and ousted them from their jobs to give them to the men returning from the war. Oftentimes unceremoniously, too. No passing of the torch or thank you for their service. Just, oh, the men are back home. Get back in the kitchen, whore. And it was even worse in the professional and degree-holding fields, with the number of women working those fields down massively by 1960 in comparison to the 19-fucking-30s. On top of that, women were marrying younger than they ever had in the 20th century up to that point. And to understand why there were more and more rings on the fingers of the women that he was laying pipe with, JFK created the President's Commission on the Status of Women and appointed Eleanor Roosevelt to head it in 1961. Two years later, the CSW came forward with a report that actually, this was a good thing, and that women should be preparing for motherhood, and actually the nuclear 1950s family was a good thing, and everything was totally fine. Of course, things were not fine, as there was a national pattern emerging of employment discrimination, unequal pay, unequal legal treatment, and poor social service support for women. By 1964, however, things began to improve with the Civil Rights Act and Equal Pay Act is passed. These prevent employers from doing shitbag things like paying someone less for having a pussy, not hiring someone for having a pussy or being black or Asian or disabled, and trying to make them quit by being a racist, sexist, and ableist asshat. At least in the 1960s definition of the term, which I guess means they couldn't call a woman a cunt to her face or use the N-word with a hard R, but hey, it's kind of progress. But this combined with the terrible treatment of their moms in the previous generation galvanized feminism to come back from the grave that the men of the U.S. thought that they had buried it in face down as women's rights movements began to pop up again. This time, taking inspiration from the heroes from the civil rights movement. And this was the beginning of second wave feminism, focused on challenging the traditional role of women in society and fucking up institutions that made it their job to keep women down and to ask the question of why. Groups like the National Organization for Women were founded, and started to launch crusades within the justice system as well as equality campaigns with mass demonstrations and peaceful protests, causing the cops that had been beating the fuck out of black people for no reason less than five years ago to have flashbacks and doom music rush to their brains. Meanwhile, grassroots fights cropped up at the same time, dealing with a ton of other issues, from addressing the colossal behemoth of an issue of a lack of women's health and healthcare, and the lack of rape trauma assistance to, to the you know equivalent of a lone goblin random encounter in a JRPG problems, like loving the term miss instead of misses or miss, and everything in between, like ensuring women's work is published in colleges, to fighting stereotypes of femininity. And by 1970, second-wave feminism specked really hard into focusing on intellectual ideology as well as a provoked theoretical discussion about the oppression of women, gender, family, and the role of women in society, and what the fuck being a woman even was. In the same year, Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, and Shula Firestone's book, Dialect of Sex, were published. The sexual politics was about the domination of men on all levels of society, and has served to become the basis for radical feminism, while Dialect of Sex was a book that pushed for women to be independent, even in parts being anti-love, as love was a chain binding you to a man. Which I think is valid, but also ignores that some men would prefer in the other direction, if you know what I mean. What I mean is I would like to be handcuffed to a woman. Uh, 
Okay, but in the 1970s, feminism mutated from being a singular movement and instead turned to literal hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different ideals and movements across the West with almost zero common beliefs behind them. This is the beginning of the forms of feminism, like cultural, liberal, and radical feminism, as well as the origin point of Earths, with other groups like sex worker advocacy groups and trans people becoming more and more visible. And in 1973, after a lot of hesitancy, the National Black Feminist Organization decides to ally with white feminists at a meeting in New York. And why did this take so long? Well, because second-wave feminists, amongst other sins, believed that women were all of the same vague general caste, class, and social level, so minority women, black women especially, were kind of wary to join because it really seemed like the white women weren't sisters fighting for basic human fucking decency and were instead more crazy fucking white people not understanding their position of privilege. And now we skip all the way up to 1992, where two women, Rebecca and Alice Walker, formed the Third Wave Direction Action Corporation, Twidak. Twidak. I'll think of how to pronounce that. Uh, this spawns Third Wave Feminism which sets about to not only undo the sins of second wave by expressly including minority and trans women, but also including enemies and being open-armed towards male allies instead of treating them with suspicion. And rather than using the machine to your advantage to make society less fucky, third wave advocates that maybe the machine is the problem and the muscly female mechanics that were always in the cartoons I watched as a kid that irrevocably impacted the kind of woman I'm into are going to take it apart completely and rebuild it in a way that doesn't build a society that says that women are icky and have cooties, and also you should fuck them or you're gay, and that's a bad thing. A lot of this fight and what denotes third-wave feminism was done through counterculture, humor and irony, grassroots activism, and actively inverting sexist tropes and stereotypes. And then in 2000, adding to the mass wave of new third-wave feminists and its popularity among young women was the book Manifesta, Young Women, Feminism in the Future, written by Jennifer Baumgartner and Amy Richards. This book told young women that the time to become feminists is now as they'd carry the torch of feminism. Adding to the pressure cooker of third-wave feminism was in 2006 when the Me Too movement begins, meant to help women who had experienced sexual violence, especially minority women, especially in places and in industries that people didn't expect sexual violence to occur encourage women to simply support each other in their pain and to come forward, if they're comfortable, of course, with their own experiences. This movement has lasted over a decade, and women and girls worldwide have used Me Too to understand and cope with their experiences. And it opened the eyes of millions of men, seeing droves of women around them coming forward with the simple words, Me Too, allowing them to condense days, weeks, months, years, and decades of suffering into something that can invade the pain without delving through it and partially from this pressure cooker, as well as the hatred of feminism from the internet and the gang rape and brutal murder of a woman in India, fourth wave feminism begins in 2012. And this time, they aren't asking. The first wave was asking nicely to not be considered objects, second wave was demanding nicely to be treated as equals, and third wave was demanding to not be condescended to and to be taken seriously. Fourth wave was giving you one chance before it brained you with a baseball bat. And fourth wave feminism, rather than being focused on what the previous generations were, have found new crises to fight back against. Sexual harassment and assault, sexualization, 
body shaming, rape culture, and the constant threat of backsliding. While they continue to carry this torch of intersectionality, fourth wavers are much more militant and willing to not only attack individuals, but ruin their fucking lives for their misogyny and sex crimes. Which, in my opinion, good. I'm in no fear. Am I a deeply sexual person? Yeah, but I'm also capable of being both respectful and horny. Do I constantly make jokes and references about sex? Well, yeah, duh. That's because I think the word cum is funny. The feminists aren't after me as much as you'd like to imagine otherwise. But anyways, as fourth wave began to take off, both one of the worst modern examples of the internet being psychotic and the greatest modern rallying cry for online feminism happened in 2014. Gamergate. Now, I'm not going to go through it here, so if you want to know what Gamergate was, just go listen to Way Tad Nerd later this week. But to summarize, basically for a period of about two to three years, you couldn't exist as a woman online with an opinion without a wave of death and rape threats, doxing attempts, and every teenage boy with a computer and a dick in his hand making fake chat logs of you sexting them. And what caused this event to end? Nothing. It's still going on, but the perpetrators have largely been kicked off most of the internet and forced into the incel tape drippings and alt-right pipeline parts of the internet. Sorry to say incel with micropenis three times. I know it's a shitty thing to remind you about. But anyways, this all caused much of the internet to say, never again, mirroring fourth wave feminists. In addition, this caused the fourth wave to become drastically more popular as people flocked to sign up on the feminist militia sheet because now they could kick the shit out of the only thing that the internet hates more than women. Incels. And over time, these recruits realized Oh, shit, fuck, there's so many women here to respect, causing them to eventually become full-fledged feminists themselves. And even up to literally less than a few minutes ago from wherever you're listening to this, there have been mass demonstrations and protests put on by fourth waivers and other feminists and their allies to show that for every action that seemingly backslides us towards a society like the 1850s in all the worst ways, there's an army of angry feminists there to fight and force the powers that be to not ignore them. And with that powerful note, let's look at what they're up against right now. So, we're going to begin by talking about the number of feminists in the United States. On average, about 61% of women self-identify as being a feminist. Which works out to be about 102,175,000 women. Which doesn't super give us a good idea of what we're jerking or gurk, I mean, looking at respectively without a full chubby. So, let's start with age. 68% of women between 18 and 29 are feminists, 58 between 30 and 49, 57% between 50 and 64, and 64% 65 years and older. Which, also I gotta say, I'm kind of fucking surprised. If you're a 22-year-old woman, you're more likely to agree with your grandma than your mom in terms of feminism. It's also wild because the vast majority of 30 to 64-year-olds live during some of these key high points of feminism where numbers swell, and somehow they're not feminists? By education, the numbers are 54% of women with a high school diploma or less are feminists, 60% if they've been to college, and 72% if they have a degree. Which also makes sense, since oftentimes when people receive higher education, they live a lot more feminist, anti-racist, and generally accepting of minorities than when they came in. And finally, politically, 
42% of right-leaning women identify as feminist, and 75% of left-leaning women do. And before you start assuming anything, that 42% can be just as feminist as that 75%. They just tend to be a bit more conservative in other areas. Understand? So if you are really looking for a feminist, what's most likely? A mid-20s liberal woman with a degree being about 37% of all feminists. And I might have just nutted in my pants. Excuse me for a moment. And the least likely feminist is a mid-50s conservative with a high school diploma at 13% of feminists. Okay, so now that we have that cover for your average feminist is like, let's actually talk about the issues they have and why. And there are six major ones we're going to talk about here. First is the abortion ban and pushback against women's health, intent on making them physically ill baby factories whose doctor visits are painful and uncomfortable. And why does this happen? Well, the baby factory case is because society largely views women as sexual objects of desire and reproductive organs rather than people, which can be attributed to sexism as well as men being socialized from a young age to be sex-hungry horn dogs so they can only think about fantastic pussy and where to find it. On the healthcare side, however, this is because of a long tradition in the healthcare community of not believing your patients and the long Western tradition of not believing women having the ugliest imaginable child together. Essentially, for centuries, it was assumed doctors were all-knowing masters of health in the human body and what they said goes. So when a female patient would complain that, hey, sticking a metal scraper deep into my motherfucking vagina and scraping against my fucking vagina scrotum, aka the cervix, kind of stings, the largely male doctors went, Psh, shut the fuck up, I've felt worse pain. Ever gotten a paper cut between your fingers? And that guy wrote a medical book calling women hysterical and a bunch of pansies in 1996, and we're still using that textbook in med school today. But the second problem is that the continuation of sexism and rape culture, and an ever-increasing pushback from people that can't even fathom the idea of being in the same room as a wet vagina. Now, we largely know why this is happening. Because for millennia, women have been treated like shit, and for the most part, men have benefited from it. And so the men that are aware and reaping the benefits see a threat to that, and so tell a bunch of mouth breathers that aren't getting laid anyway, hey, those harlots over there are giving up the coochie to people other than you. And the mouth breathers start panicking and shouting, but I'm an alpha male, 200 years ago I'd be some prime breeding material, and start trying to fight the feminists. Third is a lack of women in positions of power especially power that actually counts and means something. Not First Lady of the Town of Silverton, President of the United States. Not Director of the Department of Transportation, the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. This lack of power leads directly to a lack of female representation, role models, and also prevents women from holding open the door to equality for other women. And the reason for this being a problem is because women at work and in society in general that are powerful, strong, and forces of nature are characterized almost exclusively as being bossy, rude, shitty, or annoying compared to their male co-workers being considered as natural leaders for the same traits. Obviously, women can be shitty bosses because part of feminism is recognizing some people are shitters. Women are prejudiced to be bad leaders because society puts in your brain that a woman saying, I'm in charge, is a bitch, while a man saying, I'm in charge, is a chad. Also, on a personal note, I prefer female leadership, and not just for the kinky reasons, but because in my experience, whenever I've had female leadership on a project, 
she's more willing to listen to what the fuck everyone else is saying, and they tend to be a lot more communicative, plan forward, and understanding of your failings and shortcomings, which are all core leadership skills. Every time I've been part of something with a man at the helm, it feels like a disjointed mess of infighting, cope, seethe, and ignoring everyone's input until the last do-or-die time seconds when some more reasonable ousts the leader by force and takes charge. Also, the other reason why there aren't enough women in power is that Western women have had rights for, like, a blink of an eye in the context of all of human history. So, I mean, yeah, it's going to take a while to catch up. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything, though. Keep trying. <laughs> Fourth is that there isn't enough female representation on issues that affect both men and women, or more stupidly, affects mostly women. And obviously, this is a problem because women also have valid opinions, solutions, and feelings about things that very well might be a fix that we're all scratching our beards and ass hairs trying to figure out. But why is this happening? Because women, for as long as they've been considered different from men, haven't been taken seriously. Because of the imposed uselessness put on them by society, most men are socialized to assume that women don't know about the quote-unquote real world and only have their quote-unquote lady problems, like periods and cooking dinner for us menfolk. And so this causes a culture and society that ignores women's problems, complaints, opinions, solutions, and overall their voices until they raise them past reason, and then the attention they get is, Jesus, we would have listened if you would have just talked about like a normal person, or fine, fuck you and fuck all women. Guess I'm an incel now, rather than actually listening to what they have to say. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, I think when a community is most heavily affected by a problem, they deserve not only a seat at the table to discuss how to fix it, but also get to have the loudest voice. But women aren't even necessarily asking for that, they're asking to have someone listen to them and take them seriously, and the overwhelming response from men is, ha, huh, no. Fifth is societal expectations on women to be submissive, subservient caregivers, mothers, and providers of those sweet, sweet titties. And look, I'll be honest, does the idea of coming home from a long day of work face first in the loving arms and titties of the love of my life sound fucking fantastic? Look, I'd be surprised if you found someone who said no. And I say that to make sure you understand that the core, I'm a hypocrite. But also, because while that would be heaven, that isn't what I want from a relationship, there's a lot of other things that I want to have a relationship, including being in a relationship with a person that also wants to shove their exhausting work-weary face directly in my A-cup man titties. And all this to say is that the idea of being a soft, submissive, innocent caretaker is valid if that's what you want, like how I want to be. It's still absolute horse dookie that society wants every woman to be that. But obviously, society doesn't get like that out of nowhere. And the honest reason this exists is because it's a Western cultural thing, where the base assumption of a woman is as a submissive, subservient wife, mother, or nurse, or as a virginal, naive maiden. Which, you know, not even close to covering every possible woman on the planet. And finally, sixth is the gender pay gap, where women make on average about 87 cents on the dollar of a man. And the reasons are many and complicated, this includes intersectionality between both being a woman and another minority, who also tend to get shafted with pay, discrimination in hiring, a lack of access to education, being pre-selected to be caretakers, occupational grouping and lower-wage jobs because of expectations to work in some kind of service industry, discrimination at performance reviews and pay raises, 
mothers and women in general being forced to take on the caretaker role and take time off because of the assumption that that's their job. And also the myth of, oh, well, there's an actual breadwinner at home supporting them. And all these reasons are just a brief snapshot of the fucking occurring, like someone trying to take pictures during an orgy. There's a ton of reasons and sub-reasons, and also despite some of these being highly illegal, still occurs because it's hard to prove that's happening in the first place, even if people will listen to you. And of course, not all of these are going to be present for every woman. But those are the big six facing women today, and what feminism's biggest foes are. Now, I want you to listen to that as often as you need to to understand that this is not about you. The feminists don't hate you in particular, and in fact, if you're on the same page, they'll probably at the very least tolerate you. Because note, none of the big six problems are you. Sure, some of them very well might be attitudes you have, but having a shitty attitude is easy to change once you know it's shitty. Alright, let's get into the opinions and solutions. So, rather than start with the politics this time, we're going to first answer how to legitimately solve the big six. Because it's not like it's some inscrutable enemy we've never seen before. These big six are the big six because they survived this long. We know what the fuck is up, Kyle. We just need to actually address them and listen to the feminists. So, beginning with the push against women's health. The best way to fight that, besides day-to-day sexism, is to address the sexism within the medical community. Start by teaching what the fuck is actually going on in the baby printer and what its biomechanics are before you start letting doctors stick their weird latex fingies in there. And this one is on med schools for the most part, but you can still do your part by being an advocate. Now, the other part is actually implementing these changes, which might be a problem. See, medicine kind of selects for type A know-it-alls that refuse to be wrong. If you come with zero evidence or they don't trust the source, it's going to be hard to convince a doctor that the cervix is the balls but on the inside, and that you can't make a woman inflate with jism like hentai. Also, fight to make things like abortion legal for everyone, and I recommend blackmail, threats, and car bombs. Joking, for legal reasons. Joking for legal reasons. But the thing is that things like that are always going to be legal for rich people that knock up their mistresses and not the 14-year-old forced to be a mother by a pedophile. I mean, unless it's the same person you're talking about. So use drastic measures if necessary to remind rich people they're mortal too. Uh, getting less militant, is the continuation of rape culture. And unfortunately, the only way to fix this is going to be keeping up the good fight and keep pushing to dismantle the sexist system we had. And the best way to do that is to call out sexism when it happens, make sexists miserable, and then leave them in the fucking dust when we move past them. However, it's also important to be empathetic, and when some of them reach their hands out to become better people, it's important to help them onto the train towards not being a shithead. Because if people know that's not too late for them and they don't have to be dedicated to being a sexist because they fucked up and can be saved, more sexists will learn and repent. I mean, hopefully. Some people are just too far gone. Alright, so the lack of women in power. The best way is to give women the tools they need to succeed by holding them to the same standard you hold men to. And I don't necessarily mean physical standard, although I could be convinced of that. I mean, like, the standard and performance reviews about their leadership and when considering them for positions. Because often, as discussed and why this is an issue, the same behavior from a woman as a man gets a label as being bossy and mean rather than commanding and an actual leader. By having a unified standard, women can actually shine. 
and also by being fair and letting women get themselves into positions of power, the societal lens will slowly begin to shift away from thinking of women as diversity hires in the bad way, and are instead diversity hires in the good way. And speaking of which, female representation. And this one is easy. Give women a fucking seat at the table, dumbass. It's not that hard. Even discussing something not very important in the grand scheme of things, like talk to your friends about that woman minding her own business in the grocery store was totally trying to flirt. Specifically ask the input of female members of your group. Or if there aren't any, ask girlfriends, wives, sisters, moms even. By leaning on women's input, you get in the habit of actually asking them their opinions on shit that counts, which slowly breaks away the overall societal framework that ignores them. Alright, and the societal expectations. Besides embracing your inner submissive and desires to become a house husband that works from home and maintains the household while your wife is being a boss bitch dommy mommy in the big white world like I have, you can do a lot more to fight the good fight. First of all, educate people on gender. They say some sexist shit, really press them on it until they realize the joke is, huh, women, or it doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever. And also within yourself and other people, fight to not put women in these little boxes. Let women be people and describe them in people terms, not these neat little tropes. And obviously don't go over the top, because Americans are great at anything as being contrarians. So just push the boundary until they either shut the fuck up or change their mind, but not so hard that they double down. And finally, the pay gap. Now the best way to address this beyond stop making assumptions about your employees' home lives like a fucking idiot trying to overcomplicate the pay schedule and just paying your workers what they're worth is to do a few things. Firstly, raise both the minimum wage and the tip professional minimum wage to hopefully the same amount, because a lot of women are kind of forced into these jobs. Also, fight for fair scheduling practices. Listen to what employees and coworkers say about work-life conflicts and help them advocate to fight for their work-life balance because you're supposed to work to live, not the other way around. Also, support pay transparency so it's easier for Daddy Sam, didn't think he'd be here, huh? to bend your boss over his knee and spank them for being a sexist scum licker. Make childcare and education either free or cheap, so that mothers, and also women without the education they need, able to afford whichever one they use, so they can actually work and not be so heavily leaned on to pick up the slack for the government fucking it up. Finally make sick days, family leave, and other kinds of PTO accrue more quickly, and be more sacred than they are now. So that even society doesn't get its head out of its own ass and recognize women as full people, don't have to be the ones you call and interrupt at work to take care of their kid, they still aren't being motherfucked by capitalism. And obviously, this is just the start, not the entire solution. As a matter of fact, the entire solution might take longer than I'm alive. Alright, and now let's get into the opinions on feminism itself. Beginning with where people rank the traits of feminism. These being based on popular opinion and being empowering, inclusive, polarizing, and outdated. Beginning with empowering, 60% of men and 68% of women see feminism as being empowering. And politically, 77% of lefties and 56% of righties agree. Which, given the gender proportion, makes me feel like some number of those lefties are virtue signaling. 38% of men and 45% of women see feminism as being inclusive, I've determined 62% of men and 55% of women are fucking stupid. Meanwhile, 53% of lefties see as inclusive and 36% of the righties. 
it is polarizing to 52% of men and 39% of women, and to 37% of leftists and 43% of right-wingers. Which again, no, you're just being dumb. And finally, is feminism, only nine years post-Gamergate and one year post-abortion ban outdated, 34% of men and a quarter of women say yes. 18% of leftists agree and 30% of righties, notoriously big fans of old things, concur. Next is people's views on gender equality. First is how important it is, with 89% of feminists and 69% nice of non-feminists agreeing that it is important. And of those, 92% of left feminists and 81% of right feminists and 73% left non-feminists and 66% right non-feminists say it's important. So, all on track here. Now for the Equal Rights Act becoming part of the Constitution, the act that was supposed to enshrine gender equality as an inalienable right. 86% feminist, 91% to the left, and 74% on the right believe it should be. While 70% of non-feminists, 82% leftists, and 62% right-wingers believe the same. The next is if people don't see discrimination when it exists. 81% feminists, 90% left, and 60% right believe there's discrimination people don't or refuse to see. 58% non-feminists, 75% lefties, and 38% righties also see it. Which makes sense that the numbers are low. If there was discrimination people don't see, of course people would deny seeing it in a poll. And finally is the idea we still have a lot of progress to do. 74% of feminists believe this, which is fucking weird that it isn't higher, and 39% of non-feminists believe this. 85% of left feminists don't think we've gone too far, and 49% of right feminists believe the same, which again is weird considering conservatives generally don't like change. But finally, 60% of non-feminist lefties and 25% of non-feminist righties also think we need to go further for gender equality. Alright, and speaking of how far we've gone, Let's look at what people think about that. 12% of men and 8% of women think feminists have won, and 17% of conservatives and 4% of liberals are adult virgins. 49% of men and 64% of women, as well as a third of conservatives and 76% of liberals, don't think feminism has gone far enough, which, you know, I gotta say, no shit. And 37% of men and 27% of women think it's gone just about the right amount, and almost half of all conservatives and 19% of liberals agree. And, uh, hey, guys, have you fucking seen the big six? You think those things happen when feminism is working how it's supposed to? Okay, so what can we glean from these stats? Well, that fewer people are feminists than I would have expected. On top of that, I'm unfortunately not surprised by the number of cringe lords that are like, oh no, the feminists hate me. And how many of them are women? It's also fucking weird how often conservatives, that are in the U.S. at least, that are starting to go down the alt-right pipeline are still totally on board with feminists. They're like, well, yeah, the Civil Rights Act was a mistake, and we should be a white ethno-state with concentration camps. But whoa there, fuckaroo. Gender is a social construct, and we need to recognize that women are, are fully capable and independent humans. Anyways, now, finally, we're going to take a look at if women believe feminism has helped them which is extremely important for the continuation of feminism, because obviously, and also is a great way to see how far feminism has come. 
because the more women that believe in feminism and that it's helped, the better it's doing up to a point. Until it becomes a given and then people turn their back on it because they forgot what the world was before feminism. Okay, so first let's talk about the full female population. 7% believe that feminism has hurt them personally, 41% have been personally helped, and 50% have neither been helped nor hurt. Now here's the question. Who the fuck? Because that's where I'm at. Why do so many women not believe in feminism at all? Okay. Well, let's cool down for a second and look at some other variables. Between the ages of 19 and 49, 6% of women feel they've been hurt by feminism, 47% have been helped, and 45% have had zero impact. Over 50, however, 7% of women believe they've been hurt, 35% have been helped, and 55% haven't had an impact. Now this tells us something already. In general, it seems like older women have less faith in feminism, which makes some sense. Older people are more likely to see new changes as unnecessary. You're more likely to accept the circumstances you're born into to be the normal state of the world. Meaning for them, they'd have been born in the second wave and well into adulthood when the third and fourth wave came in. Now for education. Of the women that had only a high school education, 7% viewed feminism as hurting them, 30% as helping, and 60% as doing neither. For some college, 6% reported that hurt, 41% to have helped, and 50% say neither. And for a degree, 6% claimed it hurt them, 55% says it's helped, and 36% says neither. Which we also talked about education earlier, that you tend to get more left-leaning the higher education you have. Of course, as you can see from the stats, some people will always be fucking stupid. Apparently about 6% of people. And finally, you have politics. Amongst right-wing women, 9% say that feminism has hurt them. You know, trad fems. We found them. 28% feel like it's helped them. And 60% feel like it's neither hurt nor helped. And for left-leaning women, 5% say it's actively hurt them. 50% say it's helped them. And 43% says it's done neither. And for this one, it's actually kind of hard to parse since... Leftist and righty covers a lot of different political beliefs, from radical anarchists to Pluto-capitalists to fascists to hardcore atheist religious states. But, but the thing in common is that conservatives tend to question new things and liberals tend to question old things. In our relatively short lifespans, feminism is both old and new, so it makes sense that a lot of people are skeptical about it. But it does also surprise me that only half of leftist women think feminism has helped them. Fucking weird. But now with that covered, let's go to my soapbox. So, now that I have my chance to say what I really feel, am I going to go back on anything I said? This is the moment that the feminists realized I tricked them into wasting an hour not campaigning? No. As I said in the beginning, I was surprised while researching to find out that I'm actually a fully-fledged feminist. I always assumed I was simply an ally that was on the outside, but was cheering from the sidelines. What I've learned, and what I hope you've learned, that you don't have to be a woman to be feminist. In fact, you don't even have to be a non-male gender. You can be a man and still be a feminist. Do you think women deserve better treatment than they get? Congrats, comrade, you're a feminist. Now, obviously, there's a difference between being a cheerleader feminist and someone actually down in the pit, and that's your choice to make. Me, personally, I've chosen to be a cheerleader. I have more time on my hands or am able to organize some outdoor excursions to the West Coast from the Inlands if you know what that means. 
And while it would be a meme to say that I'm a submissive, so obviously I'm a feminist, that's not really the end of it. Not only do I see women as people, fucking wacky I know, but I was raised around a lot of women. A lot of women that supported me and were there for me when the men in my life weren't. And to be against feminism and to not be supportive towards women would be an insult to them. On top of that, as I've aged, I've found women and femme-presenting people I care deeply for, and I will be damned if I don't fight for them and the people like them. Women have made up a large portion of my life, and it's straight-up wrong to not fight to help them. And so, what do I want done? I don't know. But I do know that the time of asking nicely is done. I mean, as we've seen from recent events like the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the culture war waged by the alt-right to force women into positions of submission, the emergence of the manosphere headed by literal sex criminal Andrew Tate, we can't really just ask to give women equal rights. In a lot of ways, we have to start stooping to their level as much as supporting feminism makes simple logical sense. Think, if women are people and you understand that to be true, shouldn't they be treated as people? Shouldn't they be given the same rights, liberties, and abilities as men? Yet these people aren't operating from that stance. Their belief is that women are sex robots and baby factors and nothing else. So we can't reason with them. So stop trying to reason with them. I think, though, that it's important to accept repenters. Because you're listening to one. Out of high school, I was a misanthrope. And a misogynist. But not an out-and-about misogynist. I had deeply internal misogyny and had felt belittled, thrown aside, and used by a lot of women in my life. And that hatred seeped through everything I did. And the fight to conquer that was hard. But I wouldn't be the person I am now if people hadn't seen me fighting and worked to help me. If they didn't pull me onto that train, I'd probably be one of those manosphere dumbasses or a full-fledged fucking neckbeard today. If someone whose only crime is being misogynist wants to genuinely repent, I think it's good to let them on the feminism train. Because as I said earlier, they can serve as an example. And if you're on that path right now and have listened this far, that's a good sign. You're already on the way to getting pulled out of the muck. Right now, it's on you to pull yourself out and reach out your hand. And hey, when that time comes, I'll gladly take it and pull you aboard. Welcome on, comrade. Alright, let's finish the episode. Alright, and there is episode 7 done. If you're a degree-holding 20-something feminist, you know where to find me. Anyways, as always, if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, anything you want to send me to quench my thirst, and what kind of feminist you are, and, you know, really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytapods at gmail.com. That is... W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Wait at Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where I hope you'll like the topics just as much. And also remember to follow me on Twitter at waithat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, most women won't fuck you, even if you say please. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.